more often than not, too many leaders don't take enough risks on their people. They want to have those risks themselves, but they're not willing to take those risks on others. I go about my activities, testing myself on whether I've got a team and built a team and nurturing a team that I can put that level of trust and that level of confidence in. And I think when you can get to that point, I find that people will move mountains for your organization and, and mountains for the team. Hey there, this is Ben. Thanks for tuning in to Lead the Team. Before we jump in, we just broke into the top 2% of all podcasts globally, and that's largely due to the support of listeners just like you. I invite you to subscribe so you're notified when we release a new episode and also leave a quick review. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. Hey there, Lead the Team Nation. Welcome back. Fun one in store for you today with Chris McConaughey, who is the CFO of National Grid New York. Having joined them back in 2008 and steadily risen through the ranks with eight different roles over the past 15 years there. Now, National Grid, in case you're not familiar with it, is one of the world's largest utilities focused on delivering energy safely, efficiently, reliably, and responsibly. As an international electricity and gas company, they're one of the largest investor-owned energy companies in the world and play a vital role in delivering gas and electricity to many millions of people across Great Britain and the Northeast, right here in the United States. Chris, welcome to lead the team, sir. Well, firstly, Ben, thank you, thank you, thank you for having me on the show. Uh, very much appreciate the invite. Uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Uh, pretty, yes. pretty interesting seeing some of your content, and I, I, I would say. Um, very inspiring your story and also kind of the insights that you you bring both to, to industry and and also just human behaviors oh man i am blushing thank you very much for that what a great way to start this episode out with a little shout out to myself <laughs> i feel great all right well let's thank you for that though. it means a lot you know that's what we are inspired to aspire to so Thank you very much, Chris. Credit, Thank you for well that deserved. really cool British accent, which you were just describing to me, by the way, is not the traditional British accent. It's from a different part, right, of, of the UK that many people might know. Is that right? Well, I'd say my accent is probably very, um, I'd say very neutral these days, very not quite neutral. the king or queen's English, but I'm originally from um, Newcastle, England. So that's a northeast um about 100 miles south of scotland is that the home of the newcastle beer that was the home many many moons ago of newcastle brown ale not brewed there anymore uh but it was its uh spiritual heartland the spiritual heartland of newcastle beer okay well i will think about it is is there a is there a local sentiment there of disappointment that newcastle is no longer brewed there or uh, no, I'd, I'd say it's uh, it's still it it still has a local affinity, okay. Uh, and people are still, I'd say, keep it close to their heart. But there are many many other interesting and wonderful things about Newcastle, 
notwithstanding their uh, their football soccer team. Yes, indeed. You're a mini. Okay, good. Good to get some hometown flavor on the show here. I don't like we do that nearly enough. So let's stick on the personal side. Let's talk about something that's really important in the world about tennis. I'm a tennis player too. I understand you, you're a tennis player. Uh, tell me about. And I'm really curious about this. How has it impacted you and your your professional life as well? Well, thank thank you for uh, the question. Um, I'd say the uh, the news is I was never that good because I'm here in a CFO capacity talking about my role and experience. <laughs> you haven't been to Wimbledon. Uh, was a, you haven't played Wimbledon. It was a, a a big part of of my life growing up. All I ever did from mm. probably eight to twenty twenty one was play tennis. So I did. Went to school, played tennis. That that was kind of all I was about. Um, I'd say it's 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 formed a big part of who mm. I am. More so from the experiences that I've got from it. Um, both played, both traveled. It's what mm. first brought me to the US and and coached at a variety of facilities. So when I was 18, coached at a, um, a, a, a special school in just outside Newcastle and, and interacted with children with many, many different backgrounds and disabilities, whether it's kind of learning or, or physical, all the way up to working at kind of high net worth tennis clubs where I got the opportunity to interact with successful business leaders at the same time uh, as a wide cross-section um, of, I'd say, the socioeconomic spectrum. It gave me a good grounding in asking questions about myself, but also mm -hmm. kind of how I wanted to interact and what I wanted to do in life. You know, having the opportunity to interact with so many different people from so many different mm -hmm. walks of life is just um, – it, it, it gives you a lot to think about uh, and it's also given me a lot a lot to dwell on and 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 I'd say reflect on as I've navigated my career over the past 15 years I love that it could be anything for people but there's just there's something about I think committing yourself to something and enduring the pain I mean tennis is a frustrating sport it's an exhilarating sport um, and it's you know, one of my favorite books, I'll be curious if, it, if you're a fan of it, is Timothy Galway's The Inner Game of Tennis. Did you happen to run across I, that? I haven't read it. It's sort of like, it, it's an older book and it's from like the 70s. But some people say, hey, this is really, some people say that and this is like one of the first um, sports psychology books out there. And the premise of the book is stop judging your shots. Like don't say a shot is good or bad because where it lands, the key is to notice it without bringing that kind of self-judgment and self-loathing that seems to accompany a shot that goes out. And if you can do that, it kind of lets you play in more of a flow state. I don't know. What's your perspective on, on that piece? It's, it's interesting because one of my, uh, one, one of I've read many books, but one of the books that um, always stuck with me and my, my peers would, would laugh at this is a book called The Chimp Paradox by Steve Peters, hmm. um, which actually kind of breaks down how we how we behave and interact between different parts of the brain, one part being the chimp part of the brain, the other part being kind of the human aspect, and the third part kind of um, being the computer Mm -hmm. And it touches mm -hmm. on exactly that, which is the psychology of sport and which part of your brain is 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 reacting to certain situations. Um, and I think sports, particularly tennis, 
Um, if you overthink, I often find the overthinkers can sometimes struggle because they're always overanalyzing everything along the way as opposed to just getting on with it. So, so true. And that was me. And I would say this book helped me get through that. That was awesome. Of I fell back into it <laughs> periodically. Oh, uh, so for you growing up, was there a specific match that represented a learning moment or maybe even someone where you wasn't a match that you were playing? Maybe it was someone that you coached along the way that, that you learned something about yourself or had a, had an insight that stuck with you. Yeah, I would, I would, for me, I'd say the fact that I, always had ability but i probably never um i never translated that ability into outcomes as as much as i could hence why i didn't mm. i didn't stick with it um but the one big learning was probably from my parents throughout which is there are going to be some things in life that you're awesome at there's going to be some things in life that help you go on and do other things and for mm. me you know tennis was a big one i was always pretty good at it. I was never going to be pro. Um, but they, they gave me enough of a, without being a push, but it mm. made me think about why I should keep going with this, whether it was playing coaching, because it would open doors throughout my career. And, you know, if I, if I hadn't leaned into that advice, I probably mm. would have stopped playing at, 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 at 18. Mm. And I, and I definitely would not have had the life opportunities and choices I've had today for which tennis has opened a lot of doors. So there's a point where you're thinking about hanging up the racket, so to speak, and they say, keep with it because they were telling you about what could be possible down the road other than playing in Wimbledon. Maybe you could have played at Wimbledon, but they're saying, hey, if you're not going to go to Wimbledon, that's okay, but it'll open doors for you. You'll meet new relationships. They they showed you a new possibility, and that's why you stuck with it from that point. Exactly right. Mm -hmm. You know, I had the opportunity to come to the US and, and and play college tennis for hmm. for a year. I had the opportunity to come back to the US and and coach for a while. And and again, just having that experience and you know, being a being a an 18, 19 year old from Newcastle and getting out to the big wide world, it, it opened a lot of doors, particularly from a travel and just experience and, and network hmm. at a very, very young age. Um, and did help shape just how I think about okay, how do I how do I navigate my career when it really starts? Really, really good stuff there. I'm, I'm experiencing that story on many levels. One, I have a daughter who's 12, and she's a tennis player. And uh, I'm trying not to be that pushy parent. But, hey, you really, you know, you need to play this many times a week versus this and this. And uh, I don't want her to burn out on the idea. But I, I think they, the, the principle of and we as parents or leaders need to help those people around us see the bigger picture. Now, they may not want to pursue that bigger picture, uh, but sometimes the, the traditional thing is it comes up in sports. Uh, people say, well, if I can't be a professional and play in the NBA or MLS or, or, or professional tennis player, is it even a worthwhile endeavor? And the answer is there's a bigger picture and you need these people in life. And I think hopefully people are going to listen to this interview today and say, hey, there, there are other ways that we can approach tennis and other things if, if we can understand the bigger picture. Now for you, uh, you, know, you, you spend a lot of time in uh, a national grid and in the energy world um what's what's your commitment to the sector all about um great great question my my commitment to the sector probably didn't start on day one you know i'm a financial markets guy by background starting mm -hmm. 
in financial markets and, and banking uh, before moving over to what I call kind of the, the corporate treasury side of the world and mm-hmm. joined National Grids on the basis that it was a, you know, one of the largest investor-owned utilities had a really kind of, I'd say, complex and exciting corporate finance and, and I'd say capital markets banking team. And I soon realized after joining for probably more the career experience of what I was learning, mm-hmm. uh, more so than the company itself, how vital, whether it's municipal or investor-owned utilities, how vital core infrastructure is in society. There's not many organizations that have to service every socioeconomic group within any mm. town region. You, know, you can't you can't be an Amazon and pick who who buys your products and who you're targeting. We service every socioeconomic group. Mm. Um, and and there's not many sectors that you can work in a profession that has such a, a big tie to customer community, but also just broader kind of societal impact. And there's probably no time or no more time like present that that is more important given the energy transition we're going on, particularly around our net zero commitments pretty much globally. Um, so it's it's an exciting sector and it's it's even more so exciting in this current climate given the challenges ahead of us. Yeah, I think people listening maybe think, well, man, energy is kind of boring. Like we, we use it every day. It's... Uh, but it is the backbone of everything we do. First, I think everyone listening would agree with that globally. But what you just said is going undergoing a huge transition. The world is changing how we use it, what kind of energy we use. And there's a lot of external factors going on where um, it, but my feeling is it's like a big industry that probably hasn't changed a lot very quickly. And now the pedal's coming down for acceleration. And it seems like disruption is coming from the outside. And maybe with newer technologies, where do you, and I'm asking maybe pull out your leadership crystal ball. I mean, where is all this going? Are the big energy companies going to get on board with all this newfangled technology that's going to solve global warming supposedly and everything, or is it, I mean, where, where is all this headed? Um, I'd say it's always a balance between um, security and safety of supply, environmental factors and mm-hmm. affordability. And it's always that trilemma you're trying to wrestle with, right? Would, would we love as, as, as a society to move to net zero carbon tomorrow. Absolutely. But the pathway you go on and, and over what time you do that has a big impact on the cost of society. So you have to strike mm-hmm. that balance along with ensuring you've got the technology in place to deliver safe and reliable service. How it manifests itself in, in whether it's upstream, downstream, or um, kind of midstream power and utility businesses is we are going through significant change. Um, But what you will find is a significant proportion of the sector is very much leading into that change, whether it's gas, whether it's electric, whether it's renewables, because Mm -hmm. I'd say there is a natural bias for a lot of people who are in this sector to be 
deeply passionate about the outcome that we're looking to deliver. And it's it's mm. not just shareholder value, it's shareholder value along with the societal impact of what we have. Now, I had the opportunity three or six months ago, and I, I won't mention names, but to sit in a in a in a conference in the US with probably 50-60% of the CFOs and, and CEOs at investor utilities in the US. And one of the CEOs stood up um, very profound statement and said, there is no time like today when a group of executives can get in a room with slightly different agendas and different kind of priorities, but can make such a monumental change in the direction of society, particularly around the security of supply mm-hmm. and also um, how, we, how we navigate ourselves to net zero. And that was profound, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's the awesome thing about working in, in this corporate world is if you think about it the right way, there are groups of people that can really, really drive real change in the sector and have a huge societal impact. Well, that is a very optimistic and hopeful perspective, which I am delighted to share with our listeners. Want to boost your productivity and decision-making? Get vital insights from each episode delivered directly to your inbox. A great resource, whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to benfanning.com slash insight. Uh, Now, bringing this whole energy conversation back home to where these leaders sit today in their office, sitting there listening, maybe in their car or their own commuter in their office, on the treadmill, what questions should they be thinking about when it comes to their team, their leadership, their company, when it comes to energy? I'd say under, underpinning that, probably not dissimilar to quite a lot of other sectors, right? I think for us and for the utility sector, it's about ensuring that we've got, firstly, I'd say a workforce that represents the outcome and the communities that we're trying to deliver for. So diversity of thought, mm-hmm. diversity, DNI, kind of across all of the different attributes is, is key. Um, I'd say secondly is ensuring that you've got the right passion and drive. Capability is mm-hmm. one thing, but if you can't market that and your front page of that magazine doesn't look like the best on the shelf, you've got to have those individuals in the team that are really behind the agenda we're trying to deliver. So, you know, you could look at the utility world and say, yeah, it's a, it's a sleepy world and, you know, the supply and, and here's what we do. But you, I've seen a shift. We continue to see a shift and, and the level of passion coupled with capability that you need to drive this agenda is significant. So for me, in, in, in my role, you know, as with many leaders, it's getting the right balance of skill sets. But there's definitely, a, um, for me, a bias for those that are really committed to the agenda, particularly from a societal impact that we're trying to deliver. One of the, one of the things you said earlier was about safety and how, that, how that's so important and security because people need to keep the lights on. And energy is one of those things that, People maybe leaders don't think about for their business until they don't have it, and then they're like, "Oh my god!" Like they, you know, how how big are security risk and safety risk is is the energy grid globally in terms, you know, for sort of the average leader to to, to deal with? Yeah, it, it, so I'd say our number one priority is always safety first, right? Yeah. You can you can look at the net zero commitments, you can look at affordability, but it's always 
always safety first. We, we, we say, particularly on the electric business in the US, you're only as successful as your last storm performance. <laughs> because, you know, ultimately yeah. the world will view you on how you recovered and how safely mm-hmm. you deployed resources and assets. So it's, it is a number one, number one priority in, in, in how we go about our business. Um, and then particularly, um, particularly at National Grid, you do have to strike the balance between the, the, the pragmatism and the, and the engineering mindset that comes with building capabilities that support and deliver safety with those innovative thinkers that are going to help us yeah. move kind of the transition agenda as long as, as, as quickly as we can with affordability in mind. Yeah. So good. So kind of dialing it back a little bit into your leadership experience, what's been your most career defining leadership experience and how does it define who you are and how you show up today? Um, it was a relatively it's a good question. I've, I've had a, I've had a few, and as as with many individuals and, and leaders, the one that really really sticks out for me was a very finite, um, and I'd say short span experience, but it it, it defined probably the past fifteen years. Um, I had the opportunity. I won't talk which organization. Um, one of the organizations that I worked in, you know, being a relatively young person in my mid late twenties. Um, our, our finance director, treasurer at the time, within a month of me being enrolled, relatively junior, say manager level, um, probably three steps away from this individual's role, gave me the opportunity to present at the board on a, on a pretty, pretty sizable topic. And at the time, I didn't think anything of it, right? Other than being petrified, petrified that this, that this experience had been put in front of me. But, but knowing I probably had enough guts and gumption to, to work through it. I kind of worked through it, kind of did everything I needed to do. And it was only on probably reflecting. Maybe I always remember the experience. Mm. But each year that's gone by, I've reflected on it more and, and pulled apart how much trust and confidence mm. that that leader must have had or taken in me to put me in that position at a relatively junior level on a topic I didn't know very well. And I've always used that experience to turn that situation around at every level I've been in, which is how much trust and how much confidence do I have in my peers and team hmm. to be able to emulate that in each step that I go. And I, and I, and I think more often than not, too many leaders don't take enough risks on their people. They want to have those risks themselves, but they're not willing to take those risks on others. Um, and I'd say it's it's defined. This individual might not remember the experience. I, I have mentioned it to them once when you know the individual retired, and I, I did say, "Hey, remember that? Remember that time?" Um, but I, I reflect on it often because I I go about my activities testing myself on whether I've got a team and built a team and nurturing a team that I can put that level of trust and that level of confidence in. And I think when you can get to that point, I find that people will move mountains for your organization and, and mountains for the team because they feel um, they feel valued. Uh, they feel like somebody's willing to take a risk on them and they feel like there is something ahead of them that is going to be good and great and, and, and give them a, a level of inspiration to want to stay and work as part of that organization. What a great message. Part of a leader's role is to take risk on their people. 
And it is a risk. This guy took a huge risk on you. It sounds like, and, uh, it's, it's transformed your leadership path. Just that one. And it, people, people would say, well, he got to present to the board and the board recognized him and gave him promotion, but, or I'm not saying that happened, but it could have happened, but it sounds like the real transformation was what it did to you internally to help you step up and then all then pass and then pay it forward also to your team in the future, develop, develop them. Yeah. And it's, it's, a, it, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've had experiences similar, but there's, there's nothing more fulfilling than feeling like you've given somebody a either vision for the future, or you've given them a compelling picture of what the world can look like. If you open certain doors or display certain yeah. attributes, and it's not just about promotion, it's not just about hey, pat on the back, you did a great job, but it's it's the lasting memories you have of having interactions like that with individuals. Yeah, yeah, I love it, man. What a what a great thing for listeners to take away today <laughs> to think about how are you giving opportunities to your team and acknowledging that it's a risk for you. Maybe you as a leader, you help them prepare a little bit, you help them get ready, but you really lay the groundwork for that in your leadership and set that expectation for yourself to do that. So let's, let's move on to the next topic here. You like to talk about the importance of authenticity, which is something that a lot of leaders bump up against because let's be honest, there's like this persona of the super leader. And then there's like the reality of leadership. And when it comes to authenticity, how, how does all, how does all this shake out for you? Yeah, I've, I've um, I'd say I've had mixed emotions with authenticity over my career. Not not that it's good or bad, but it's it it took me a while to figure out how you how you show an authentic self in a corporate world. You know, when I came into the workplace, I kind of put corporate world here and private world somewhere somewhere separate because that's kind of what I'd grown to know. Mm. Um, you know, I I experienced kind of my my younger life, um, very different kind of socioeconomic interactions. Whether it's where I lived, where I went to school, kind of who I played tennis with, all, all of that stuff, kind of started to kind of I'd say niggle on me around: Am I being authentic enough at work? And if I'm not, what is that doing for an organization? And and particularly, mm. um, actually, when I came to the U.S., um, the one thing I've loved about being in the U.S. is the, the willingness generally for Americans to wear their heart on their sleeve a lot more and be a little bit more upfront about emotions than maybe Brits are, we, we can be quite reserved. So I was forced into a bit more of a, of a sharing culture. But what I have found is um, if you cannot be authentic at work and really articulate the who you are and how you operate and what your motives and expectations are, it's hard to ask it's hard to ask others to do things for you, with you, and for the greater good. If if they're not 100% confident in, you know, is this is this person genuine? Is this how they operate? Is this who they want to be? So I've, you know, I, 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 there's probably still a level of, of measurability in, in how I approach things. But I think authenticity um, coupled with hu- humility are probably the key attributes for w- what I think are successful leaders that I'd love to look up to as well. Yeah, and it, it's a lot to bite off for people, especially if they're er, if they're early in their career. And sometimes I think if you ask the opposite, well, what is it like working for a leader 
who you don't feel is authentic. Is people like, oh yeah, you know, they show up like this. They don't do what they say they're going to do. And even the part about you missed, you mentioned the kind of the personal side of things. I can remember when I was early in my career, my, uh, my work friends did not know my family and my personal friends and my personal friends, even my family didn't even know who my boss was. Like I, I like to keep those things totally separate. Why? I don't really know. I just felt like that's what I was supposed to do. And the more steps I took to sort of bring them together a little bit, um, I didn't have pictures of my family up at work, by the way. Like I was like that, I'm not doing that. But I started to gradually introduce that and it became a more enjoyable experience. And I think I could relate to people more um, than before I, before I did. How do you, how do you see it kind of showing up for you tangibly? Yeah, I'd, I'd say those, um, those things resonate, you know, my kind of, whether it's sharing family stories, mixing friends, I think if I look past eight, nine years, 10 years, relative to probably the first five, six in the workplace, those things melt into one another. And I, um, I'm, I'm sure you'll, I'm sure you'll see this. I had a good friend of mine, um, a couple of months back, join one of our CFO team meetings to share his experience in the workplace and talk about mm. different career paths. And it's actually quite interesting because who you surround yourself with um, is is super important, right? Because it, it's oh. a reflection of kind of the behaviors and actions yes. you have. But actually, it was received well by the team because, you know, this individual is probably one of the most authentic and genuine people I know. And he was very, very open about, you know, who he was. And it was, it was mm. great to, you know, I reflected on it and said, you know, if, if, if I feel like I'm surrounding myself by good people who can do good things, I should be able to co-mingle those things. And, and actually the impact of that is far more reaching than, than actually holding those two things separate. Oh, wow. Yeah. There is a synergy when those things come together that I don't think people will really even believe it until you try it. And yeah. it's, it can be a huge advantage. Um, and people remind you of who you are in your personal life at work and vice versa. And I love it how you brought in, you know, that the people you're spending the time with and how important that is. There's that old Jim Rohn quote that you, you become the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And by bringing them together, especially your, the ones that really seem to be the most impactful for you in a positive way. I, again, it's just a great way to get more time with them and allow them to influence you uh, in a positive way. And the, I, I'd say the, the other thing that resonates and I, I really reflect on weekly, monthly is, mm. you know, just the economics of it. You spend five out of seven days in the workplace, right? And of those five days, you spend probably a greater proportion with your work colleagues than yeah. you do with family. If you can't add value in that time and extract value from that time, you, you've got to be asking questions. And I, you know, I probably didn't reflect on that enough in the early part of my career. So you know, I'm, I'm keen to make sure that all seven of those days have an equal weighting of the experiences I get, but also what I get back within that time. Hmm. Wow. What a comment and what a, I'll say a, a call to action for leaders to reflect on. Let, bring up your calendar right now. 
after this episode, look at those seven days, look at the blend of people that you're spending the most time with. Now in your corporate world, in the professional world, you can't always choose who you spend time with, but when you can choose, make a conscious choice. Um, I, I'll think about like, even when you arrange your meetings, you know, if you're, who do you want to have, like when you can set that meeting, <laughs> are you setting it in a part of the day? Maybe you need a little charge at the end of your day. So you're going to set that positive meeting up and maybe get the more, more difficult one out of the way first, when you've got a little more energy to contribute to the situation or maybe the reverse, depending on how you want to play it. You're, and, and you're right about, you know, you, you can't always pick who you're interacting with. It's just the, the, the nature of the world we live in. But you can influence making that a better interaction oh, yeah. for those who may feel the same. Mm. And, and and again, that's that's part of the commercial world, right? You have to interact with so many different people. Uh, but you can bring good and make sure the right behaviors are coming out in those interactions. Love it. Mm. So I'm going to ask you for your parting thought for listeners. But before I get to that, what is your top tennis tip for budding tennis players? I got to bring it back to that. What is my, um, well, I never really cracked that one myself, given where I am. <laughs> Rick, I'm still working world. on my best one, or my maybe what's your favorite or most effective? I would that say you your, if you can, I don't think people work enough on their neck game. Hmm. And I and I and I think it's the area where you can win the cheapest points with the right ability. Everyone always wants to be able to hit it out from the back of the court for 50, 60 shot rallies, right? It feels good because you're on the court, you're hitting a lot yes. of balls. But I think I think the hmm. net game is underinvested, completely underinvested by most people. I can see that. You see these juniors out there rallying all day long. They don't want to get in the net. They don't want to play in there. That's right. It requires a lot of reflexes and a lot of timing and anticipation. And yeah, you got to commit uh, to do that. All right. So bringing it back. So let's, so I thank you for answering that. I'm going to, I'm going to go relay that message after this interview to a certain person <laughs> or household. Go and practice your volleys, man. Go and practice your volleys. <laughs> get out there and volley. What is your parting thought for leaders? You can take any, any, uh, any perspective you want on this? Um, I'd say a couple of things that I hold near and dear to my heart, particularly both as a colleague, but also a, a leader is a couple of things, particularly when you think about how folks develop and how they could and should develop is the first one is um, for folks to continue to market themselves. I think as you go on in your career, I think people often think they're marketing themselves, but they market themselves less and less and just assume people think they know what they're doing and they're going to do good things. Um, second thing is know what your competitive advantage is. Know what the value is that you bring. Um, and then I'd say the third thing, which is which is really kind of part B of the second item, is know, that, know, know the shadow you leave. I think a lot of people mm. um, spend a lot of time reflecting on what they think they're good at but actually the perception of what they're good at and what people think about what they're good at is more important than anything else. And I, and I often think that is a, an underinvested part of, of how people develop and how they spend their time. Mm -hmm. um, some people call it the shadow of a leader. You know, 
if you're not a leader and you're, you're trying to find your, your way in this world is, is really understand how you are perceived. Because if you can focus on that and understand it, you absolutely know what your jumping off point is. Oh, so good. There's that adage of perception is reality. And, it, and, it, and it's so true. And it's important for leaders to be mindful of that. Chris, thanks for coming on Lead the Team. Ben, thank you. And uh, again, appreciate the, the great insights you bring stuff like this that folks should be listening and, and, and reading to more often. If you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting, do this before you do anything else. Head over to benfanning.com slash quit to receive a free signed copy of my number one best-selling book, The Quit Alternative, The Blueprint for Creating the Job You Love Without Quitting. You'll learn the critical questions you must answer before you make such an impactful decision. Go to benfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of the Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.